Good morning, Hill City. <laughs> morning, City Hill, from my house around the corner where I left my wife and my, and my boys. I wore them out this week. Yeah, for, for uh, a whole month, we spent a week in a conference. You know how that is, right? <laughs> and so I got home like 11 o'clock last night with my, my wife and my boys. And, uh, and uh, I told them, they woke up like this this morning. <laughs> so I said, Daddy got it this day. I'll take care of it. <laughs> so, uh, but it's an honor to be with you. Honored to be with you if you're in uh, Mansfield. Good morning, Mansfield. My brother lives in Mansfield around the corner. Could y'all wake him up and get him going so he can get to church too? I appreciate that. So, I am so excited to be with you. How do I uh, met uh, Pastor Adam? was uh, Christ for the Nations Institute, maybe like 2000, I want to say 2005 or 2006. And then later on when I Came on staff there. I was there eight years as the director of the Marketplace Leadership Major. Uh, NAC, if and I folks in the house. Oh, come on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Woo, woo. <laughs> but um, July of 2020, the Lord had me to, to step out in faith, resign to focus on healing the racial divide. Remember when we used to have a racial divide in our nation? Now we got the vaccine divide. The, the devil is just always coming up different ways to divide us, right? <laughs> So, but I believe God's going to use the United Church to heal a divided nation. And uh, so I want to share with you guys a little bit of history. I love Pastor Adam because, you know, he asked me to come with this message. A lot of people asked me to come and speak during a Black History Month or whatever. But what I have to share with you today is part of our Christian history. It's all of our family experience. And I'm going to talk about how some people fought together in prayer and changed the nation and how God's doing that right now today and inviting you into the very same tapestry. So turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles, like my friend Christian Strada used to always say, <laughs> to John 17. And I'll work on this. I come with props, okay? <laughs> I know y'all wondering what's in the box, right? The whole Pandora thing. <laughs> right? Uh, all the quilt people say, ooh, yeah. Not about the quilt. That's a nice quilt. So John 17, I love John 17, because you get a chance to overhear Jesus praying for you. You ever had any, you ever overheard anybody praying for you? For me, I remember overhearing my mama pray for me once. I came home a little tipsy. That was my college days, okay? That's not an excuse. I'm just telling you what happened. College days, I went to Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. Came home from the summer, my sophomore year. I thought, I come in, go hang out with my friends who were in town as well. Went to the club. Come back home to my mama's house in Fort Worth, Texas, a little tipsy. So I, I didn't want to wake my mama up. So I thought I was going to ease into our house and just tip on in and not disturb her, right? But who's up at 3 in the morning, y'all, praying for me? My mama. She's just whoom, going to town. Devil, I bind you in the name of Jesus. Jezebel, you better back up. Delilah, I see your hand. I plead the blood, the blood, the blood. <laughs> my old saints knew something about the blood, right? <laughs> 
I heard one preacher say it like this. He said, the only difference between a praying mother and a pit bull is lipstick. Because a praying mama, just like they, they, they don't let go of her. <laughs> Y'all talking about a buzzkill? That was a buzzkill. I didn't think she knew I was on the other side of that door, but I, that's, I stayed there for like a good 45 minutes to an hour listening to my mama, who's normally quiet, just <sighs> going to town praying for me. Never heard her pray like that before. About a year or so later, when I for real, for real gave my life to the Lord, I told my mother, I said, Ma, you had no idea. One night I overheard you praying for me, and it, it wrecked me. It, it transformed my heart. Branded me. Say, you know, I was on the other side of that door, but thank you for praying for me. She said, oh, I knew you were there. I knew you were there the whole time. (laughs) I just wanted you to know what got a place to my heart concerning his plan, his purpose, his destiny for your life, and how I was contending for it. Church, I would submit to you that John 17, Jesus is allowing us to overhear his prayer time for us. And it's a, it should sober us up. It should wake us up. Here's what he's praying for. Look at John 17 and verse 18. It says this, As thou sent me into the world, even so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified through the truth. Neither, listen to this, neither pray I for these alone, talking about the 12 disciples, but for them also who believe in me through their word. Turn to your neighbor and say, now he's praying for you. What is he praying? That they may all be one. As thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. That the world may know that Thou hast sent me and has loved them even as thou hast loved me. What I want to share with y'all today is an amazing story. History of prayer and an invitation to partner with God to change Mansfield, the Cedar Hill, the whole Metroplex through your prayer life and your sacrificial love for one another. God's going to raise up a united church to heal a divided nation. And he'll say that you're part of it. Let's pray. Jesus! We overheard you praying for us. And it's wrecked us. It's branded our hearts. Give us the grace to respond to your voice in this thing. God of providence, we thank you so much for the families we're born into, the neighborhoods we live in, the people we get to connect with, the nation that we live in. Connect us to your unfinished business. And Holy Spirit, come. Do what you do best and what you love most to do. Make us love Jesus more than we did before we first came in here. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen Amen and amen. So y'all probably wondering what this hunk of tan is doing up here. This has been passed down in my family like many, many generations. It's connected to this powerful speech, too, by the great preacher, Dr. Martin Luther King. I'm going to share a little history about this speech, but before we do that, let's check out Dr. King. with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. I have a dream 
that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream. Powerful. Love that speech. Did you know that phrase, though, I have a dream? Did y'all know that it came out of a prayer meeting? That little phrase was birthed out of a prayer meeting. There was a little girl named Prathia Hall. She's 22 years old. You know the story, huh? She, she, yeah, she was in a church that was burned down by the Ku Klux Klan. And so Dr. King was in the middle of that rubble with her in that prayer meeting. There was a whole lot of prayer going on during that time in the civil rights movement. A little bit different from today, but that's another sermon for today, for another day. So they're there in this church, burned down by the Ku Klux Klan, and this little girl, Prathia, how would you like to have named name Prathia? Her daddy named her after prayer. And she went on to be a powerful preacher in her own right with the Prince of Theological Seminary. She's an amazing woman of God. But here's the deal. She's there. She's 22 years old. She's in the middle of this rubble, standing in those ashes, and she starts to pray, I have a dream. And she starts naming off her own list. They were taking Dr. King to the airport, and uh, Prathia was with him. He said, young lady, you know, that, that little phrase you had was pretty powerful. You mind if I borrow that? She said, yes, sir, by all means. Dr. King incorporated I Have a Dream into his prayer life for a whole year. He gets to Detroit, and he's about to preach. Well, he preaches basically preparing for his sermon at the mall in August, you know, the 23rd, 28th. They're, uh, they're at the mall in Washington. So it's a month before that, so he does the prepared speech that his speechwriters do. But then at the end... Just spontaneously, he kicks into the very thing he had been praying for a year, and he comes up with his own list. His friend Mahalia Jackson was there, and she just was blown away by the last part of his message. But his speechwriters didn't like it. They said, you know, Doc, that I have a dream stuff is a little cliche. Why don't you take that out of your message? So reluctantly, he agreed. <laughs> But if you listen to the right version of the I Have a Dream speech, when he's actually there, the mall in Washington, the month later, he gets through reading his speech verbatim, and then when he gets to the end, you can hear somebody in the background say, Martin, tell him about the dream. That's Mahalia Jackson. And then he kicks in the I Have a Dream. The rest is history. All because he overheard somebody else praying. Question. What impact is your prayer life having on somebody else? I'm not saying you have to, you know, <laughs> pray with one eye open. <laughs> See who's in the room. That's not what I was saying. What I was saying is this. What kind of impact is your prayer life having on somebody else? God is after our prayer life right now, more than ever. And I love that speech because I'm one of those sons of former slaves. This kettle pot... It, was owned by the slaves in my family, my father's side of the family. It's passed down at least six, at least seven generations. It's about 200 years old. It's passed down because they were Christian slaves who used this pot for cooking, but they secretly used it for prayer. I'll show you how they used it for prayer to muffle their voices so the slave master wouldn't hear them. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But then other thing that's really cool about it is that one, being born into this family, I, you know, nothing just happens, right? And uh, I know there's some things that are incidental and sometimes coincidental, but even in the Hebrew language, they don't have a word for coincidence. 
They just believe that God watches over it all. And in Romans, it says that God works together all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And he just has a way of doing that. And they used to call God the God of providence. Matter of fact, this kettle pot comes from Lake Providence, Lake Providence, Louisiana. Providence is the continuous activity of God by which he preserves and governs. It's the way God looks over seemingly insignificant things and apparent accidents. In other words, you have no idea how many things God prevented from happening for you to get here this morning. You had no, no idea how many things that seemed like they accidentally happened and you stumbled into this situation and you divinely met this person or whatever. You got that job, you got that promotion. Listen, the God of Providence was watching over all of that. And my favorite understanding of providence is in Ephesians 2 and 10 where it says that we're, um, how does it say it, Ephesians 2, we're God's workmanship in Christ Jesus, and we're walking out the works that he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Listen, y'all, that word workmanship is a powerful word. It's the word poema. Everybody say poema. Right? So you hear the word poem in there, right? So think about it. You're God's poem. You're his song. But even greater than that, the word poema was the word that was used to describe someone who was a skillful tailor and a fabric maker. A poema was actually a person who was a master weaver. And that's what God is. He's a master weaver. And, you know, my, my sister, she used to do crochet and needlepoint and all those kind of things with yarn. And sometimes she'd be weaving something together, and on one side of it, it just looked like a mess, like a bunch of knots and tatters and everything couldn't understand the pattern. So what are you working on? She said, oh, let me show you this. And she turned it around so I can see what she's working on. That's what God is doing with this little story I'm telling you today. He's turning the tapestry around so he can see, listen, with all the knots that are going on with vaccine mandate, foolishness, this, that, another, race, tension, everything else, all the things going on. Listen, God hadn't been surprised by any of it. And so I want to turn the tapestry around a little bit just so you can see what he's working on, not just in my life, but in yours too. All right, so the way you kick into this stuff is through prayer. You understand what providence is doing with prayer. And uh, all of a sudden, these uncoincidental, coincidental things start to happen in your life. I like the way the Archbishop of Canterbury said, he said, uh, when I pray, the coincidences happen, but when I stop praying, the coincidences stop. <laughs> in other words, you start praying, and all of a sudden, you just, these stream of things began to kick in your life. That's what, honestly, what happened with me. So, honestly, I hadn't, I hadn't thought much about this pot. So, I went to a little conference, Colorado Springs, Colorado, where a man named Dutch Sheets was teaching on this concept of prayer. What's prayer? Not just prayer, but synergy in prayer. Synergy. Synergy is when you take two separate things, and when you connect them together, they don't create an additional power, but a multiplicity of power. Scientists say if you take two horses and if you put them together, if they're pulling the same load, it creates so much exponential power, it's as if a third invisible horse has been added. Now, spiritually, we know that one could put a thousand to flight and two could put what? Ten thousand to flight. That's synergy. So think about it. You start getting all this agreement in prayer between red, yellow, black, white, brown. You start getting all this agreement in prayer between old, young, male, and female. We can see the synergistic exponential release in the power of prayer like we've never seen before. All right? Psalm 133 says, well, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in what? Unity is like the anointing oil that flows from Aaron's head onto his beard and onto his robe. And then the Bible says, for there, everybody say there, the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Listen, y'all, God's looking for a place called there. And it looks a lot like a place called here. Listen, don't take the ethnic diversity, the generational 
unity and diversity that you have, don't take it for granted. I don't see it everywhere. <laughs> Fight and maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace in this house. Amen. Don't let nothing, anybody, anything disturb that. <laughs> because you, if, when you do, you'll diminish your power. But that said something that was so profound and it changed my life. He said this. Not only can you agree in prayer with the person sitting next to you, but you also can agree in prayer with the generation behind you. He was talking about how he's at his alma mater, Christ for the Nations Institute. And he's leading the student body there in prayer when he came back there to, uh, to be a speaker. And as he's leading them in prayer, the Holy Spirit began to say to him, Dutch, I want you to come in agreement with the prayers of Gordon Lindsay. And he thought, hold up, God, is this really you? Because that man's dead. He's been dead for more than 30 years, and I know you're not talking to the dead. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit said to him, I didn't say agree with him. I said agree with his prayers. They're still alive before my throne. I'm looking for the next generation to take up the baton of intercession that's been dropped in this generation. Finally, the scripture in Hebrews 11:39 39 and 40, it finally makes sense to me where it says, all these by faith, talking about the great heroes of faith, they were approved for their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. So that apart from us, they wouldn't be made perfect without us. In other words, y'all, there's this whole company of people looking over the balcony of heaven saying, hey, y'all, don't mess this thing up. God started something in us that he wants to complete exponentially through you. Jesus said it best when he said, what greater works of these are you going to do because I'm going to the Father. And he'll start something in one generation and complete it exponentially through future generations. Especially in the place of prayer. Why do I say that? Psalm 133, we like to use Psalm 133 to talk about unity and agreement as a principle when we work together. But primarily, it's the work of prayer. Why do I say that? Because Aaron was a high priest. So here's this high priest. He's praying for the nation. And if you read Psalm 133, you see how it says that the oil, the anointing oil would flow from his head onto his beard and onto his robe. Listen, here's where the joining of the generations comes together in the place of prayer in that verse because that one robe was passed down from high priest to high priest to high priest. But as it was passed down, it accumulated anointing from previous generation to the next generation and the next generation. We don't understand that concept because what happens is we'll, we'll pray for somebody, we'll put a little oil on our finger when we thump somebody on the forehead, right? That's not how they did it back then. They would take, according to scholars like Jack Hayford and others who studied this, they would take up to a gallon of that thick, rich anointing oil, pour it all over that high priest's head. And as the oil dripped down his head onto his beard, then it went onto that robe. Listen, that one robe that saturated was then passed down to the next high priest. But as he receives his anointing for today, as the oil dripped down from today, it mingled with the anointing from the past on the same robe. Then that same robe was passed down to the next high priest. In other words, there's supposed to be a momentum-building anointing in the place of prayer that goes from generation to generation to generation, the saturation of the ages. So everybody's looking for the next woman there, I lose something, or the next purpose-driven this or that. Those, I mean, great titles by great authors, that's not my point. My point is this, God's not after originality right now. He's after a successor. And to that successor, he released a double portion of anointing on that. So powerful. And not only make them impactful in this generation, but make them a springboard for future generations to come. In the place of prayer, Jesus said the best. Greater works than these are you going to do because I'm going to the Father. And they'll start something in one generation and complete it exponentially through future generations. Right? 
So, when I heard that concept and I thought about the baton being passed on, prayer, I thought about this kettle pot that's been in my family. Like I said, it was used by the slaves in my family. They use it for cooking. They use it for washing clothes. Those, those enslaved Christians, they use it also for prayer. They were owned by a slave master who would beat them for any reason. Praying was one of them. Back then, they wanted slaves to be Christians, believe it or not, because they felt like Christian slaves made better workers. But they would pervert the gospel and say, slaves, be obedient to your masters if you want to go to heaven. Now, we know we're saved by grace through faith, not of works. It's a gift of God so that no one should boast. But it was easy to teach slaves that back then because it was against the law for slaves to read and write. It was also against the law for anybody to teach them how to read and write. And if they were called praying, it would be beaten as well. I'll give an example of how cruel slavery was on this plantation. We had a story passed down about a great uncle named Uncle Willie who had fishing without asking. And so they decided to make an example out of him on this plantation. So they took him and they strapped him to a tree and put both arms and legs around either side of that tree. Took a leather strap, which was shredded, which had rocks and nails and glass attached to it, something like the cat of nine tails. And they beat this slave for father of ours until all the flesh was pulled out of his back. The family, in an effort to save his life, put lard or grease on a sheet, and they wrapped it around his body like one big bandage. They put grease, of course, on the sheet so that the cotton wouldn't stick to the exposed skin on his back. And he bled to death and died. So that's how cruel slavery was in that plantation there in Lake Providence. And if they were caught praying, they would be beaten as well. Why? Because they didn't want them to get any kind of hope for freedom. But in spite of the danger and because of their love for Jesus, listen, these folks decided to pray anyway. So what they do is they would sneak into a barn late at night to make sure their prayer meeting wasn't seen. But to make sure it wasn't heard, they used this cast iron pot. So what they would do is they would go into the middle of the barn, take this pot, turn it upside down, then they would prop it up with rocks on the edges so it would be suspended off the ground about, a, about an inch or so. They would then prostrate themselves on the ground and put their lips in between the opening between the ground and the kettle so that the kettle popped up for their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story that they passed down with this pot is this, is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time. So they prayed for the freedom of their children and the next generation. So one day, freedom comes. There's this young teenage girl. She decides to keep this pot Next story in our family. Why would she do that? Because she overheard somebody else praying for her. And she realized she wasn't the only recipient of their sacrifice. She's probably thinking about all those who are dead and gone, who risked their lives to pray for her. She's probably thinking about all those who are too old to enjoy the freedom she's about to embrace. She decides to keep this pot and that story in our family. And she passed the pot and the story down to Harriet Lockett. Harriet Lockett passed it on to Noah Lockett. Noah Lockett gave it to her son, William Ford Sr., who then gave it to William Ford Jr., who then gave it to me, William Ford III. So I'm there at this conference thinking about the heart that God had given me for revival, the heart he had given me for the next generation. And I thought, oh, my God, to whom much is given? And I remember this pot in my family. You know, back then, they had a slave master that kept them from praying. To be quite honest, we have a willing master that keeps us from praying. You know what it's called? It's called Netflix and chill. It's called social media. It's called entertainment. Listen, we won't see what they saw unless we do what they did. You know, we feast and play. They fasted and prayed, and something's changed. 
and not just black Christian slaves, but also white Christian abolitionists and revivalists. They transformed the landscape of the whole country. But beyond the obligation, I thought about the privilege. I thought, oh, my God. I get to agree with the prayers of my forefathers for the freedom of this next generation. I thought about the exponential results that could be released and created from that. Shared that with my new friend, Pastor Dutch Sheets, at that time. He had me share it at a conference. It actually turned into a prayer journey. We decided to do around the country called the Kettle Tour. But Dutch needed confirmation. He said, God, you really want me to take some cast iron cooking pot around the country and use it as a representation of the prayer bowls in heaven? Listen, y'all, Revelation 5 and 8. So there are golden bowls in heaven full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. You know why they're golden? Because that's how precious your prayers are to God. He collects your prayers. And I love that part where it says, uh, Jesus said, out of the mouths of babes and suckling come perfected. Praise, the word praise could also be translated as prayer. Out of the mouths of babes and suckling comes perfected prayer. What does perfected prayer look like? My little Two or three-year-old was to come up to you and ask you for some Wawa back in the day. You wouldn't understand exactly what he was talking about because I'm his daddy. I understand his request. I perfected him. I said, no, I know what he wants. Give him some water. God perfects your prayer. You know, there's sometimes in prayer all you can do is get a tear coming down your face. All you can do is get out a moan or a groan. Sometimes all you can do is just get up. Remember my old days on the mourner's bench, and they were just, mm, and that's all they could get out. We have a God who says, I take that. Revelation 8 says that he adds more prayers to your prayers. He adds incense to your incense and he perfects your prayers. Dutch said he was praying. He said, God, you want me to have some cast on cooking pot reference to prayer bowls in heaven? This Bible fell open to Zechariah 14 and 20 as a confirmation. It says this. And the cooking pots in the house of the Lord shall be like the bowls before the altar. So here's this cooking pot that's caught muffled prayers. And it was a bowl in heaven that catches our prayers like incense. And Dutch said this to him. He said, William, wouldn't it be just like God in his justice and irony to use the prayers of a slave generation to free a nation up for revival again? So I'm glad he said generation because it wasn't just black Christian slaves praying back then. Also white Christian abolitionists and revivalists who knew that if any person was a slave was a Christian to that person, was their brother. Listen, they let their lives down for them. Many of them had their houses burned. They were shot. They were killed. They were even lynched because they chose to suffer with the people of God rather than just compromise and wicked slavery. They were fighting for family because they knew that their history was, and their storylines were connected because of the blood of Jesus. They helped me understand something. See, if my ancestors had been Muslims or Buddhists, I'd have no connection to this part of his history. Why? Because I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. But because these folks were Christians too, not only is this part, part of my family history, listen, y'all, it's part of yours, too. In other words, I'm just as much a spiritual son of Matthew, Martin, Luke, and John, <laughs> and Jonathan Edwards, and Charles Finney, and Harriet Beecher Stowe, as you are Martin Luther King, and William Seymour, and C.H. Mason. And when we come together in that kind of unity, that kind of agreement, y'all, something powerful happens. Oil begins to flow. Anointings begin to mingle. Yokes get broken over generations. There was a Supreme Court law back then called Dred Scott, which said the slaves had no rights in the courtroom. Everybody thought that law sealed the fate of slavery in our nation. But because God sent revival, that law got broken so radically in the hearts of people. Listen, people in the North started fighting for people in the South that didn't look like them. 
That's why I'm daring to believe, listen, the same God that broke the power of dress God, listen, y'all, he can break the power of a Roe v. Wade. He can put an end to systemic poverty. He can stop our schools from being a pipeline to prison. He can shut down mass incarceration. He can put an end to the opiate crisis in the suburbs and shut down crack houses in the inner city. He's just looking for a new generation of people who will drop their agendas and come together and believe. But the Lord told me, he said, William, if you want to be a part of this, you got to deal with your own baggage. He dealt with me through this, through this dream that he gave me about the dream of Martin Luther King. In the dream, my friend Lou Engel and I are in a car and we're driving. We're going to Dr. King's church in Montgomery, Alabama. But in the dream, we couldn't get there without first picking up Dr. King. <laughs> so it's a dream, right? We go by this house and Dr. King comes out. But in the dream, he had this humongous white duffel bag with black handles on it. And in the dream, he starts emptying all this dark garbage out of that duffel bag. Then he throws the bag down violently, and he comes to get into this vehicle with us. And in the dream, I thought to myself, man, that bag can make a nice souvenir. Shows y'all corner I am, like, like even in my dreams. I'm thinking, I went to Morehouse College. He went to Morehouse College. The bag can make a nice souvenir. So in the dream, I try to pick up the baggage. But before I could touch it, Dr. King grabs me by my shoulders, and he says, no, do not go back and pick that up. And in the dream, he starts telling me what I need to do to heal the racial division in our nation. I wake up from the dream in tears. I was wept so hard I didn't even realize it. My pillow was soaked in tears. I, I wept the whole night in intercession. I shared the dream with my friend Lou Engel. He begins to weep. We began to pray, God, what is the interpretation for this dream? I, I was like, God, remind me, what did Dr. King say to me? The Lord said to me, William, the white bag with the black candles. That would be the interpretation for your dream. And I realized... The black handles represented my ethnicity. Me as an African-American man. And the white baggage represented my unforgiveness issues that I had. The Lord saying to me, William, get rid of your white baggage. You've been carrying it for way too long. I knew what God was talking about because I know what it's like. 13 years old, come out of a convenience store with three other friends around the same age. Carlo full of white guys pulled up, started shouting the N-word at us said they were going to shoot and kill us. They chased us for almost two hours. We didn't know them. They were probably just joyriding, but listen, we were terrified. I know what it's like later on in my life to get my first nice house in the suburbs. But the same police officer every week for the first three months, he would pull me over just for driving while black. I know what that feels like. But you know what I've done? For every police officer... And every white person in that community, I put those stories on everybody. Before I had one conversation with anybody, I'd already prejudged them. I saw everyone through the veil of those experiences. That's what the devil loves to do, doesn't he? The Bible says he's the accuser of the brethren. That word accuser, y'all, comes from this powerful Greek word. It's the Greek word kategoros. So we get the word category. In other words, the diabolical plot of the enemy is to get us to categorize or stereotype each other. So before we have one conversation with each other, we put some bad storyline, some bad stigma on somebody, some bad stereotype. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your bitterness. Get rid of your resentment. Get rid of your unforgiveness. Get rid of your white baggage so you can get into a new vehicle that can bring revival and justice for everybody. I think right now that's what the, the Lord is saying to the church question he has for all of us right now is this what color is your baggage is it red yellow black white brown or is it blue 
red. <laughs> Listen, y'all, from everything we saw, 410 cities set on fire a couple of summers ago to January 6th to the far extreme right. And what happened at the Capitol? Listen, y'all, left wing, right wing, the whole bird is sick. We need the dove back in America. It's not about the donkey, the elephant right now. It's about the lamb. Is it about who we vote for or is it about who we live for? Something's got to shift in the mindset of the church. Because only a united church is going to heal a divided nation. The next day after this dream, I was actually in Dr. King's old church doing a service. And I walk up to his pulpit and I have this big, thick book, about 600 pages. It falls open to the I Have a Dream speech. I start reading that speech like a prayer, and I get to that part where it says, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves, sons of former slaveholders, sit together at the table of brotherhood. And the first time I thought, God, whatever happened to the family that owned my family where the kettle pot came from? But little did I know that Mr. Poema was going to connect me to some more unfinished business. So my friend Lou Engle said, hey, I'm going to do a prayer gathering at the Lincoln Memorial. MLK Celebration Day, I want you to come, bring your pot, share the story. We're going to do a prayer meeting at the Lincoln Memorial that day. And if you put up the next slide, this is that prayer meeting. This is what it looks like. That's the prayer meeting. It was January 17, 2005. It was pretty cold that day, as you could tell, right? <laughs> I don't know why we had to do it in sub-zero weather in January. <laughs> Right, for eight hours, but we did. <laughs> but I'm not the person who took this picture. Um, if you, because you can see me in the picture, you follow that, 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 that hand with the blue sleeve at the end of the fingertips, that's my little face. The guy who took this picture was a guy named Matt. He came to that gathering because he had a dream. His dad had died, and uh, he did what most people try to do, you know, when family member passes away. Where did we come from? He had all those questions. Tried to find more about his family history. Couldn't find anything and um, found out it would be, most of it had been burned up in courthouse fires in Kentucky. But then he has a dream one night, and in the dream, he's praying for revival and a culture of life with a man named Lou Engle. He wakes up from his dream, and he goes, who and what is a Lou Engle? He had never heard of him, never met him before. Types his name in Google, and up pops the face of the man that he saw in his dream. And he's praying for revival, praying for a culture of life to be released in our nation, and he thought, okay, this is crazy. He wasn't part of anything we were doing. So he finds out about that prayer meeting, and he shows up. I speak that night, and um, he told his family, he said, you know what, if this is God, I need to hear my name called out or something, like one of those kind of things. You ever get in those kind of moments where you're like, God, I, this is really you, I need confirmation. Y'all play the confirmation game? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you know, I'm supposed to test God, but every now and then I say, okay, I'll go ahead and do it. You know, you make it real difficult, like you know, with calculus and Mandarin Chinese all thrown in, and God, if this is really you talking to me, I need you to do this, 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 and this. And God says, okay. And you go, wow. Okay, but is this really you? Hey, you start all over? <laughs> Matt talks about that. That's what, that. So that's what he did. So I'm there speaking that day. He says that to his family. He brings his nine-year-old daughter with him. And I start sharing the family history of this kettle. And I said, this comes from the locket side of my family. I see this little girl elbowing her dad, and then her dad starts to weep. He comes up to me later on. He says, man, you know, you said that... This kettle comes from the locket side of your family. 
He said, that's my last name. My name is Matt Lockett. I'm like, really? I haven't met a Lockett before. How y'all spell Lockett? With two T's or one? He said, we spell it with two. I said, oh, my family, we spell it with one. So where are your Lockett's from? He said, uh, Kentucky. I said, oh, mine are from Louisiana. But, you know, it was enough to connect us as friends. And we started an amazing 17-year-long friendship. He's one of my best friends. Well, fast forward. My friend Matt Lockett and our other dear friend Lou Engle were doing a prayer meeting at the place where the South surrendered to the North in the Civil War. We were pray- they were praying for the division of the nation at Appomattox Courthouse. And, and Lou Engle goes into the visitor center, and he just grabs the first random book that comes. What is it about God and random books? They happen to fall open to pages. He opens up this book, and it falls open to this random page. If you go to the next slide, and this is uh, that random page. It says, uh, the last shot, the battle for Lockett's farm. So my friend Matt Lockett is freaking out because he's, like, hearing his name called again. Turns out that the last battle of General Lee, who was a Confederate general, his last battle was fought at a house owned by a family named Lockett. It was called Lockett's Farmhouse. Three days later, he surrendered April 9th, 1865, at Appomattox Courthouse. So he thought, man, what a cool coincidence. About that time, his brother had finally cracked the code on the family history. He said, hey, man, I just found out some really interesting information. You know, we were some of the last land barons in Virginia. Matt says, hey, man, do I have a Virginia story for you? And he starts telling them about this house, Lockett's farmhouse. And his brother says, hold up, stop. I just got the documentation on it. That's not just any Lockett family. That's our family. In other words, my friend Matt Lockett finds out that the Civil War ended in his family's front yard. So if you go to the next slide, here's the house. I mean, it's still around to this day. If you go up close enough to it, you can see to the bullet holes, and it's still from the Civil War. It's been preserved from the day of battle. And uh, you go to the next slide. So these, this man says, how much do you know about your family history? You go to the next slide for me. And um, he pulls out. His research on the family history, Matt pulls out his brother's research, it fits like a hand in a, hand in a glove. It's definitely his family. Wow. He said, what else do you know about your family? He said, not much. He said, well, some of y'all left from Virginia and went to Kentucky. Matt says, I know about that part. <laughs> but he said, also, um, y'all had really, really big families. Y'all owned lots and lots of slaves. And y'all traveled from here and went to Kentucky. But some of y'all went to the deep south. And some of y'all went to Louisiana. And before Mac had asked him, he says, oh, yeah, sometimes as you travel across the country, you dropped off one of the T's off the end of your name. Well, he started thinking what y'all are thinking. And he flew from D.C. to Dallas, and we laid out our family research. If you go to the next slide. So this is a family census of ours, the oldest known, believed to be family member named Isaac Lockett. It's 1870 census. You know, about six, seven years after slavery has ended, this is probably a place where he was a slave. He's 90 years old in this census in Louisiana, but in this document, though he's in Lake Providence, he said he was originally from Virginia. You know, slaves always took on the last names of people who owned them. And he was probably transferred from one family member or whatever or willed off to another family. My grandfather was born Lawrence Lockett. But his grandparents who raised him didn't want him to have a slave last name, so they changed his name to William Lawrence Ford. That's where we became Fords. They just gave him the first and the last name of two family friends. That led to more research for about a year and a half, and here's what we found out. 
It was my friend Matt Lockett's family who owned my family where this kettle pot came from. So think about it. Here's my family praying for the ending of slavery. And then all the way up at the farmhouse of the people used to own them, slavery comes to the end in their front yard. But then, because he's the God of the past and the future, and Mr. Poema, he loves to heal history, he weaves two people from those same family lands, Matt Lockett and I, weaves our storylines together so we can war against injustice in our day and cry for awakening in our time because that's the kind of God we serve. Let me show you how crazy the story is. We go to the next slide. This is Napoleon Lockett and Mary Lockett. They were like the gone with the wind aristocrats of their day. And uh, Napoleon, he owned by himself 126 slaves. Between he and his 11 children, they owned hundreds of slaves. His wife Mary was like a socialite, like the gone with the wind types. And she didn't like the fact that the Confederate White House didn't have its own flag. So she hired a designer, and Mary Lockett, Matt's ancestor, she designed the very first ever Confederate flag. <laughs> she came up with the idea for it, and uh, she hand-delivered it by horse and buggy to her friend, President Jefferson Davis of the, of the Confederacy. And if you go to the next slide, you see it. So Matt's family is, quote-unquote, the Betsy Ross for the Confederacy. In that trip, and this is the flag that she came up with, the stars and the bars, but they thought, yeah, that's too much like the Union flag on the battlefield. So let's come up with a rebel flag. Let's come up with the Confederate battle flag. And if you go to the next slide, that's the one that we're most familiar with. But look, think about it. Because God heard the prayers of black Christian slaves and white Christian abolitionists all around the country, also in this family. Listen, through the same family where the flag of rebellion was raised up, next slide, the flag of surrender goes up in their front yard. Because that's the kind of God we serve. All right? So we stayed stuck there for about a year and a half, growing in friendship, but then Matt made another amazing discovery. He found out that he had, in his family, circuit riders that traveled with Francis Asbury, who were revivalists and abolitionists. That's huge because everywhere that the circuit riders went, they carried three things in their satchel, hymnal, a Bible, and a manumission book. The manumission book was forms so that if they preached the gospel, and a slave owner got saved, they would say, listen, it was for freedom that Christ set us all free. Therefore, go ahead and sign these manumission forms and go ahead and set your slaves free too. We know that's what happened because everywhere the circuit riders went, the free slave population grew exponentially. So it's like all of our families. Yeah, Matt had slave owners in his family. We also had revivalists and abolitionists in the same family. We have these things in our family called generational blessings and generational curses. They represent these dominating themes of storylines. I think that's what God is shouting to America right now is this. What storyline do you want to be a part of? The healing or the hurt? The blessing or the curse? What storyline do we want to be a part of? I'm sure this last story. So um, there was another family member of Matt's who decided on a good storyline. Her name is Lucy Lockett. She walked in on two slaves who were trying to teach each other how to read and write. Remember, it was against the law for slaves to read and write, and they thought there was going to be some bad consequences for that. It was right after slavery had ended, but it still was frowned upon. So Lucy Lockett catches them learning how to read and write, and uh, she says, no, no, what you're doing is good and right. I'm going to take over your tutoring. And she hires a tutor to teach that mother and that five-year-old little boy how to read and write. Why do we know that story? Because that five-year-old boy grew up to be a man named Robert Russell Moton, and he put that story in his autobiography. Robert Russell Moton became an education, educational advisor to four presidents. 
He became the second president of what is now Tuskegee University. And, and in 1922, when the Lincoln Memorial was dedicated, he's the man that did the dedication speech. If you go to the next slide, this is him there doing the dedication speech at the Lincoln Memorial. <laughs> 1922. Then 41 years later, Dr. King would come to those same steps and say, I have a dream. And then 41 years later, Matt Lockett and I would meet each other at those same steps at a prayer meeting on MLK Celebration Day. Isn't that crazy? Now think about it. This happened to two men who were led by dreams to meet each other at the place where Dr. King said in his I have a dream speech, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. So maybe the dream speech wasn't just poetry. Maybe it was prophecy. Maybe there's a dream king called the king of kings. His father said, going to answer his son's prayer. Father, I pray that there be one so that your glory could come, so that the world would believe. Maybe God hasn't forgotten about the prayers of your mama and your papa now. Or pray through your hall. Or Martin Luther King. I know he hadn't forgotten about the prayers of his son. He wants to answer those prears to you. Stand to your feet, please.